This is UCL Uncovering Politics. This week we ask, if the international community can't make states abide by their human rights obligations, then what's the point of invoking human rights? Hello, my name is Emily McTernan and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. Human rights atrocities make headlines around the world and are usually followed by national and international debate over how the perpetrators should be punished and how these events might be prevented in the future. Governments of the countries where such human rights violations take place often come under intense criticism and are pressured into creating processes of inquiry or passing legislation. And yet often little seems to change on the ground and victims of human rights violations are rarely, if ever, satisfied with the outcome. This begs the question, what is the point of these international calls for justice if justice is rarely forthcoming? A new book dealing with these questions and the contradictions in the international human rights order was released this year. Its author is Dr. Kate Cronin-Furman, Associate Professor in the UCL Department of Political Science. And I'm delighted that Kate joins me now. Welcome, Kate, to Uncovering Politics. Thanks so much for having me. It would be great if we could get started with a quick explanation of the human rights system or order that we're talking about today. So when a major human rights atrocity happens, what theoretically should take place next? How should victims seek justice and what steps do international actors take to hold human rights abusers to account? Ooh, okay. So this is a little bit of a tall order, actually, to describe um, the international human rights system. And the reason for that is that it's quite decentralized. Um, So in theory, what we might want to have happen uh, goes something like this. Um, News of an atrocity reaches the international community you know, splashed over the headlines, the New York Times, the Guardian, the BBC. Um, Victims and their allies on the international stage call for justice and an international tribunal is created uh, in order to prosecute and punish the perpetrators of these atrocities. Now, that almost never happens. Um, And the reason for that is, you know, something that all of us in international relations spend weeks drilling into our students' uh, brains, uh, which is that, you know, the international system is non-hierarchical, right? It's not like a domestic system um, where there is a straightforward authority um, that can enforce rules and compel punishment. Um, So... You know, instead, we have lots of different institutions that are tasked with monitoring and attempting to enforce piecemeal um, bits of human rights obligations. So we have um, a number of foundational human rights treaties that states sign up to voluntarily um, and, you know, Ordinarily, treaty enforcement is done by the other members of a treaty, right? So, you know, your run-of-the-mill international law treaties, um, a trade treaty, for instance, 
we rely on reciprocity for enforcement, right? So two states are signed up to a trade treaty. If one of them shirks its obligations, the other one is going to suffer as a consequence and therefore be incentivized to police the obligation um, and make sure that their fellow treaty members perform. That's not the situation in human rights, right? So, you know, we have these large um, multi-member treaties, for instance, you know, the Convention Against Torture, hundreds of members. Um, but if one state doesn't abide by its obligations, so uh, let's say France um, is torturing journalists, you know, the UK is not harmed by that, right? And it would make no sense for the UK to reciprocally break the obligation and torture its own journalists to punish France, right? That's nonsensical. Um, so because we don't have that reciprocity incentive for the other members of a treaty, to um, police compliance and enforce, you know, we have all of these other institutions that have sprung up to do this work. So the treaties have their own monitoring bodies, um, you know, through the United Nations. In the case of the Convention Against Torture, it's the Torture Committee, um, or the, the Committee for, for the Convention, sorry. Um, and on top of that, you know, because even, you know, treaty monitoring bodies can't do all the work of keeping up with every state's human rights behavior every day, all the time. Um, we have non-governmental organizations. Uh, we have a, a tremendous industry of human rights organizations, grassroots, regional, international, um, that do the work of monitoring human rights. So, you know, some of the big ones whose names people might recognize are Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Um, but all around the world, there are human rights NGOs doing the work of kind of monitoring states' human rights behavior. Um, and when they don't abide by their obligations, calling that out, right? So the kind of um, classic strategy of the human rights movement is something called naming and shaming. So naming perpetrators who have broken their human rights obligations and attempting to shame them into compliance. Um, these organizations try to affect um, the willingness of third party states to, to intervene and to act in cases of egregious human rights violations. Um, so basically, that is a very long winded way of saying that there are many actors at many different levels involved in the work of monitoring human rights behavior and attempting in some sense to enforce human rights obligations. Thank you. That was such a helpful description of what is clearly a really complicated system. The kinds of pressure then you're talking about the international community placing on human rights violators seems fairly weak, right? If it's just naming and shaming and maybe some attempts to try and encourage others to do something about it. That looks like a quite a weak way of enforcing, if it's enforcement at all, these duties to abide by human rights. Yeah, I mean, you know, I spend a lot of my time, you know, in the classroom and also in my research, um, trying to kind of think my way around the fact that, okay, almost none of our institutions or actions in the kind of human rights arena do what we would want them to do, right? So nothing, nothing works as ideally intended. But the converse to that is that it doesn't do nothing, right? So I think often 
um, empirical political scientists, uh, <laughs> students, lay people reading the paper, um, sort of look at the UN, look at other, um, you know, efforts to improve human rights uh, and, you know, get really discouraged um, or quite cynical about it and say, you know, well, you know, these, these institutions can't do anything, right? So, um, you know, because of power dynamics in the international system, you know, this is useless and it's hopeless. That is not true, right? Um, and, you know, it, obviously in, in all contexts, it can be hard to hold two things in our minds at once, right? Um, but, you know, I think this is, this is a really good example of two things being true at once. One, um, none of this works the way we would want it to. None of, us, none of it does what it is, you know, designed to do. Um, but on the other hand, it's not doing nothing. There are really important and interesting effects um, that one, you know, should be studied, um, and two, that we need to understand in order to do the work more effectively. Great. And we'll get to some of those things, I think, as we as we go on to talk about the details of the book. I wonder if before we could get there, um, I know that you have a background working in the international human rights area yourself. And the book outlines how some of your own experiences have shaped and informed your approach as a researcher. I wondered if you could tell us something in particular that you saw on the ground that motivated your work in the area. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, um, this is a story I tell in the book, and it's kind of my, you know, supervillain origin story or whatever. I started out as a human rights lawyer. Um, and in my first job out of law school, I went to Cambodia, where um, the tribunal to prosecute Khmer Rouge regime leaders was being set up. Um, and, you know, part of the work that I was doing there uh, was, you know, studying the draft rules of procedure and evidence for that tribunal um, and kind of assessing how well it matched up to, you know, international standards for, for fair trials. So um, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, going on uh, what were basically info sessions that the tribunal staff were holding for people who had been affected by these atrocities. And one day I found myself um, in a hotel ballroom about eight hours drive out of the Capitol where um, members of the prosecutorial team were speaking to maybe 60 or 70 um, survivors of Khmer Rouge atrocities who had kind of come down from their um, uh, villages in the mountains uh, to, to meet these international lawyers and hear what they had to say. And up on the dais, um, the tribunal staff, you know, gave their spiel about how prosecuting these decades old crimes would um, combat impunity. It would instill respect for the rule of law in the Cambodian system um, and improve human rights for uh, people currently. Um, and then they did a Q&A. And it was clear that there had been a near total failure of communication. 
So when people raised their hands to ask questions, almost all of the questions were something on the order of, okay, you know, where were you in the 1970s? You know, did you know this was happening to us? We starved for four years. Why didn't the UN help us then? Um, and, you know, observing this, I was a really young lawyer. Um, and this was, you know, my first kind of real job out of law school. Um, I found it very disheartening, right? Um, because this was this was the work that, you know, if you were going into the field of transitional justice, you hope to be doing. Um, and seeing this total disconnect between, you know, the, the lawyers doing the work and the people they were ostensibly helping um, was, uh, you know, really kind of jarring. Um, so I started to kind of ask around, uh, you know, what's, what's the theory of change here? Um, what evidence do we have that doing the work this way helps people? And at the time, this is about 15 years ago, um, there really wasn't a ton of research on the impact of prosecution of international crimes. Um, that's that's changed today, but you know there wasn't there wasn't much literature on this at, at the moment. Um, so eventually, I decided I was going to go to grad school and you know learn how to do math um, and uh, figure out how to study these questions myself. Um, so that's kind of what what took me out of practice and to the academy um, and how I came to be writing a PhD dissertation on accountability for mass atrocities, uh, which kind of ultimately formed the the kind of seed of this book, I would say. That's a really interesting motivation. So I guess one question that arises out of that before we get to the main argument of the book would be we talked about the types of organizations that are putting pressure on states to do something. Um, and you're now talking about this kind of quite historical approach that's being taken, right, where we go in very late in the day and kind of uncover previous crimes. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit about what's the goal? What, what, is the, what are these states being pressured into doing? Um, what, before we get into what happens in reality, can you outline what sort of steps states say they'll take to appease national and international critics. So you're talking, you've just talked about a kind of later in the day commission trying to uncover what has happened. What else is demanded by these actors that want to hold people to account for human rights atrocities? So there's a very clear norm in the international system uh, now, um, which, you know, is, is a fairly recent vintage, right? So, you know, for for centuries, kind of the the default approach to human rights abuses by a state of its own citizens was sort of the, I guess what I what I used to call the the Las Vegas principle. I'm not sure that this <laughs> reference still resonates, but the sort of you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, you know the idea that what happens within a sovereign state's borders is no one else's. Um, and over the last 70 years, um, that has changed. Um, so today, um, there is a fairly clear norm that in the aftermath of serious violations of international law, so mass atrocities, meaning genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, it is obligatory to prosecute the people most responsible for the most serious abuses. And that's kind of the, the formulation. 
Um, so that means that um, a state on whose territory serious violations have occurred um, is expected, is pressured to hold people criminally liable. So to actually prosecute in a court of law um, the people who are most responsible for what happened. Now, there are all sorts of reasons that that doesn't happen, right? So uh, states in the aftermath of serious conflict um, may have very fragile institutions. They may not have the resources um, or, you know, the human capacity to do those prosecutions. Uh, it is often the case that people who were involved in atrocities in a uh, high-level role remain in power. So it's, you know, politically infeasible to do these prosecutions. Um, and that's why we have, you know, now we have an international criminal court, right? And this is, um, you know, basically a court of last resort, right? So when states who, you know, should be prosecuting these crimes themselves, can't or won't do it. The idea is that the International Criminal Court then uh, is there to backstop this, um, which means that, you know, what states are effectively pressured to do is either do prosecutions themselves or cooperate with a relevant international institution. Great, that's very helpful. Thank you for talking us through that. I wonder if now we could talk about one of the central parts of the, the central idea, perhaps, of the book, this idea of the quasi-compliance of a state. What were you trying to capture with this idea and with the, what's going on when states look like they're complying but don't? Is that is that what we're getting at? Could you explain that thought? Um, so when I went to kind of do my PhD research, I was trying to get a sense of the range of things that states do uh, in response to international pressure for accountability for mass atrocities. Um, and, you know, unsurprisingly, I found that, you know, full kind of cooperation compliance is really rare. Um, and, you know, that makes sense because prosecuting mass atrocities is legally really complicated. It's resource intensive. Um, and, you know, it is kind of a, a truism that the perpetrators of atrocities don't prosecute themselves. So anytime you have people in power who are implicated, you know, you don't see these prosecutions. So, you know, I was not surprised to see a lot of inaction in my data. What was a little more surprising was how often I saw states doing something really kind of confusing. So something that was not in action, right, not kind of totally ignoring pressure from victims or international actors for accountability, but also not anything that looked like compliance with this obligation to provide accountability. So, you know, we there are states that set up kind of window dressing commissions that have a really nice mandate about looking into violations, but then, um, you know, result in like a whitewash, right? So, uh, you know, one of the earliest examples I found was 
Sudan with regard to atrocities in Darfur, you know, with with a massive international outcry occurring. Um, the Sudanese government creates this commission to find out if there are if there was genocide or crimes against humanity occurring in Darfur. And then the commissioners are subjected to tremendous pressure from the government uh, to exonerate them. So we see that. We see kind of kangaroo courts. We see the very um, rushed prosecution of really low-level people uh, for atrocities and then maybe like one conviction and then the court closes up shop and goes home. Um, so I was really curious about why there was so much of that behavior in my data. Um, and kind of set out to explain what was happening there, why we would see this sort of um, in-between response between doing nothing uh, and actually satisfying the demands of, um, you know, victims and their allies and advocates on the international stage. Um, and so I kind of theorized this as an attempt to do just enough to disrupt international pressure and potential international enforcement without actually meeting the obligation. Um, and I call this quasi-compliance because I have a background in legal practice and in law, we use the term quasi to refer to something that will be treated as if it were the thing that it isn't. Um, which is kind of a, a complicated formulation, but basically, you know, in law, we have quasi contracts, right? Where a court will find that even though the legal requirements for a contract don't exist between two parties, there is reason to act as if it does. Um, so I kind of consider these states doing this in-between stuff to be engaged in a similar performance of as if, right? Behaving as if they were complying um, and attempting to get treated as if they were in compliance, even though the fundamental requirements of complying with the obligation aren't there. And as you describe it, this the point of this for a state is to try and avoid more serious sanctions coming its way. So it needs yeah. to look like doing the work without actually doing the work. Yeah, and I think the kind of key thing here is that it's not really about convincing anyone, right? So, um, you know, we we might look at this behavior and think that it's about trying to kind of convince the international actors um, that are doing a lot of kind of human rights work and putting a lot of pressure on them you know, that they've done enough and should be left alone. That's not really what it is. Um, and it very rarely actually has any impact on, you know, your human rights watch or your kind of UK human rights bureaucracy in the government. Like those actors are not persuaded by this, right? They, they pretty quickly call it out as, um, you know, not being good enough and not kind of meeting the obligation. Um, so I, I understand this as essentially um, a response to that lack of hierarchical enforcement that we talked about a few minutes ago in the, in the realm of human rights. Basically, you know, in order for the international community to, um, you know, 
really do anything robust to enforce human rights, it almost always requires a coalition. So, you know, the kind of the site of a lot of action around accountability for mass atrocities is the UN Human Rights Council. Um, and that is a body where a majority of states on the council is needed uh, in order to pass a resolution. Um, and what that means is that, you know, it's not just those states who are really engaged and involved on human rights, whose opinions matter, um, because they need to bring along a lot of other votes in order to actually get anything done. Um, so I think of quasi-compliance as often being aimed at uh, those sort of less engaged peer states on the Human Rights Council uh, or you know, any other institution where, where um, debates about this are incurring. Um, and it's basically um, gives those states a reason to, to push back, right? Um, and to not sign on to robust human rights enforcement. And again, it doesn't have to convince them. So I think, you know, what I, what I sort of find most interesting here, um, theoretically, is that, you know, this is, this, this is hypocrisy, right, on the part of the quasi-compliance state, the state that is, you know, not meeting its obligation to provide accountability for mass atrocities. But it's not really hypocrisy that is about protecting its own reputation. It's hypocrisy that helps to protect its audience's reputation, right? Um, because it lets those other states avoid the appearance of siding with an outright human rights abuser. Right, interesting. It gives them an excuse to get them off the hook for not acting. Yeah to enforce these human rights. Fascinating. How does this dynamic relate to another dynamic that we sometimes see where states deny that there is a human rights violation or deny that it's appropriate for the international community to impose these Western conceptions of human rights on their own citizens and how they think a state should be run? Is that a similar giving it an excuse to less motivated actors not to act to enforce compliance? Or do you think it functions differently to the types of cases you're discussing? So actually, the really surprising thing is that we see all of that simultaneously. Um, so, you know, one of the cases that I did a lot of work on uh, is post-war Sri Lanka. Um, and, you know, this is a context in which there were very serious state-perpetrated mass atrocities um, at the end of the Civil War in 2009. And that fact has been kind of a central feature of Sri Lanka's international relations over the past 13 years, uh, where many members of the international community, both states and non-state actors, um, have, you know, called out these atrocities, demanded uh, accountability, um, and been very kind of engaged on, um, you know, pushing Sri Lanka to improve its human rights record. And, you know, Sri Lanka is the case where we see a cr the creation of several of these quasi-compliant institutions. But at the same time, we also saw flat denials that anything had happened, right? So for years after the end of the Civil War, the Sri Lankan government insisted that there had been no civilian casualties. 
um, that this was a humanitarian operation to rescue civilians um, and that certainly none of them had been killed by government forces. Um, we also saw very consistent um, statements that um, Western pressure on human rights was, you know, inappropriate imperialist action uh, that infringed on Sri Lanka's sovereignty. Um, so we saw all of these strategies kind of deployed side by side, and that is not uncommon. Um, and I think that's part of what makes quasi-compliance so interesting is that we see states do this even as they are denying that anything of interest to the international community occurred. Um, so I think, you know, this, this can be closely related. Um, I think, um, you know, I have my, my second book project that I'm working on now is actually um, on denials of mass atrocities um, and, you know, what, what that does on the international stage and how that works. So uh, let me try not to start talking at length about that. <laughs> Fascinating. I'm looking forward to hearing all about the next project. I wonder if before we go, is there an optimistic note that your book can leave with our listeners? So I guess a listener might be thinking if the outcome is so often a lack of tangible change in these forms of quasi-compliance or denial, why do international actors bother to put this kind of pressure on regimes that violate human rights? And, and perhaps what could a better system look like? Is there some way we can better enforce compliance and avoid these strategies of quasi-compliance by states? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, and, you know, part of the reason I wrote this book was kind of in the hopes of illuminating windows of opportunity for, you know, victims and their allies in the aftermath of mass atrocities. So I'm, I'm very conscious that this is in many ways um, a discouraging account, right? Because it says that when faced with a repressive state that doesn't want to improve its human rights record or doesn't want to provide accountability for mass atrocities, that, you know, international human rights pressure will never achieve its aims, right? So that is potentially a really dispiriting message for victims of human rights abuses to hear. Um, so I felt like it was really important in the book to kind of talk through and, and think seriously about, you know, what that meant for advocacy strategy. And I think there are some kind of glimpses of light here um, because, because the international system is complex. And, you know, the point I kind of started with that even though pressure and human rights institutions don't almost ever do what we want them to, they're not doing nothing, right? So, they have impacts and they have lots of unintended consequences. Um, and I think that, you know, what that means is that, you know, we need to, we need to pay very close attention um, to where the actual potential levers for change are um, and to think very strategically about, um, you know, how we approach advocacy uh, for human rights and specifically advocacy around accountability um, for mass atrocities. So I think, you know, one implication here um, is that even though, you know, strong demands to perpetrator states to provide accountability are not going to push them to do it, um, 
they will they will have effects on third party audiences, right? So you know when I when I talked about what the impact of quasi compliance is, um, it often really hinges on um, third party states being able to say with a straight face, you know, this state is not so bad. They're working on it. You know, we don't need to pass a human rights council resolution impaneling an international investigation. We don't need to censure them. Um, so I think, you know, part of the work here should be about making that an untenable position for those third party states. Right. So, you know, strong calls from um, international advocates, from victims and their allies um, for accountability, you know, um, consistent uh, statements about the egregiousness of the violations. Those things can counter the effectiveness of a quasi-compliance strategy. And that's important because that is going to contribute to, you know, not letting that state get away with, with um, you know, sort of staving off international action. So thank you so much, Kate, for that wonderful discussion of human rights obligations and that detailed analysis of the quasi-compliance strategy and how we might be able to get around it and do better for the victims of human rights atrocities. We've been looking at a new book by Dr. Kate Cronin-Furman. It's entitled Hypocrisy and Human Rights, Resisting Accountability for Mass Atrocities, and was published by Cornell University Press earlier this year. As ever, the details are in the show notes for this episode, which also include a link to the book. Next week, we will be discussing sexual minorities and the politics of visibility with Professor Ayub. Remember... To make sure that you don't miss out on that or other future episodes of UCL Uncovering Politics, all you need to do is subscribe. You can do so on Apple, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast provider you use. I'm Emily McTernan. This episode was researched by Connor Kelly and produced by Eleanor Kingwell-Banham. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening.